Welcome to the 26th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guests, Seth Katz, George Sawaya, and Jared Marcel Pollock. Seth Katz, a writer of fiction and film criticism whose short story called The Present Progressive is out within The Machine. Coming soon, right? Yeah, it's just called The Machine. Uh, oh, it's just called The Machine. Oh, it's the literary magazine of Folsom Lake College in California. Beautiful. We were talking about how you needed to do that shout out. We, uh, shout out to Flint's a community we had, college. We argued, argued for hours. But I guess you just got it in. We'll talk about it later. George Sawaya is also here, a poet whose chapbook, A Good Leave, he co-wrote with fellow O.R. Devin Kelly, who you guys all know. And George is also a fiction writer, currently querying a couple of opuses. And finally, we have Jared Marcel Pollan, a writer of fiction and criticism, whose debut collection of stories, The Unified Field of Loneliness, is out with Crow's Nest Books. I also reviewed it, and it's coming out tomorrow with Atticus, my, re- my glowing review. And Crow's Nest is also publishing his debut novel, Venus and Document. So the gang is here. We all went to Sarah Lawrence, and we are the... What do we call ourselves, guys? The Stillwell crew, right? Uh, in your That's dedication it. to your thesis, you referred to us as the Stillwell Avenue Cognoscenti. <laughs> oh, God. Shit, I should have kept that for my novel. I just did I just did 25 Stillwell, which sounds a little more ominous, to a be honest. A little more cryptic. Yeah. The number. I think the number, it's like, you know, signs and semaphores, you know? <laughs> anyway, okay, so we're here. Oh, oh, yeah. Today's brand of fuckery is brought to you by the... The K-hole. The Krat hole. <laughs> the the Kratom, as they call it. We out here. I'm sipping. I'm sipping lean. I'm sipping that green lean, guys. All right. <laughs> is it uh, is it still legal in New York State? It is still legal. Honestly, the fight is looking the the Kratom lobbyists are winning right now, I'd say. There's a Kratom lobby? Oh yeah, there's a couple. And with Gottlieb ste- stepping down, the FDA has a better strategy now. Rather than trying to make it illegal here, they're kind of just extorting the growers and exporters out in like Indonesia and those countries and stuff like that, you know. So we'll see how it goes. But right now, the legal battle's going well here in in the states, in the lovely free United States. Anyway, so we're here today to talk about auto fiction and the like. So I don't know. If, do I have to define that? What do you guys think? Who has a good definition on hand? Don't don't raise your hand at once. All right. The literary equivalent of a selfie. Ooh, just uh, disdainful enough to know that it's Jared. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I all right. Here's a good way to do it. How do we distinguish autofiction from I don't know autobiography? I think it's a hard question because most novels will be interrogated on that level. When you write a novel, people always want to know which parts of it are true, or they assume that much of it is true. Yeah. Whether that's the case or not, and I think that when you're really close to a piece of writing that you've been working on for a long time, you can see parts of yourself in it that nobody else can see. So often, novels are autobiographical in ways that people would never expect. I went to a Jonathan Lethem reading in 2014 when his book Dissident Gardens came out, and I asked him about 
autobiography in his work because his early novels are mostly genre fiction, science fiction, and, you know, kind of uh, detective fiction and stuff like that. Whereas his more recent novels seem to be drawing more from from his family and his upbringing and, and you know, are set in New York City. Were, they, were those early novels, were they uh, genre novels? Or were they literary mysteries? They're sort of like uh, genre deconstructions in a way, particularly okay. like Gun with Occasional Music is kind of a sci-fi noir hybrid, sort of like Blade Runner. In a meta sense or... Or just with like, it's very know. conscious of the tropes that it's using. Yeah. Okay. But 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 anyway, Lethem said that those early those early novels are just as autobiographical as the more recent ones because they they were growing out of the stuff that he loved the the pulp novels, the music that he loved, the the kind of you know comic books or whatever whatever other influences he was drawing on were very personal to him. So those early books are autobiographical in a way that most people might not that most people uh, wouldn't be able to recognize. So is that a Romana Cliff or? something of the sort you know if you don't recognize it what, what do you have to do do you have to put some stamp on it that says this was part of my life or do people just know that because we have so much information on people I think you know, I'm just trying just to broaden. Knowledge? I'm just. I think I'm just trying to broaden the way that we think about what is autobiographical yeah, in right, fiction, right. because any any fiction that you write is going to be autobiographical on some level, mm-hmm. whether it means that there's a one to one correspondence between a character and a real person, like in the novels of Jack Kerouac, or if it's you know, I mean, anything that we, that I just mentioned with Jonathan Lethem, just as a good example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I should have said memoir rather than autobiography, because you can kind of tell right off the bat, you know, autobiography is kind of like it sounds, it comes off as mm. like something you turned into like your eighth grade teacher or something. <laughs> well, as memoir is kind of like it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's got that connotation that it's kind of artistic, I guess. I don't know. But everyone's writing memoirs now. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, people will write five, six memoirs throughout their career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I will uh, I will kick us off by uh, citing an article that Hermione Hobie recently published in The New Yorker. Hermione's a fantastic writer. Her novel, Neon and Daylight, I think it was published in 2017, but do not quote me on that. She, honestly, the novel isn't about all that much, but she kind of just, you know, her, she has the way with words. She can make you kind of interested. If you're interested in sentences, you're going to be interested in anything she writes, because... She's, she's got a great pen. So let's try and summarize this, uh, this article. It's called, What Does It Mean to Be a Real, Quote, Real Writer? And it uses two novels that are, I guess, can we agree they're autofictions? Two novels, they're, they're called, Jared, help me out here. You got them in front of you. One of them is Loudermilk. Yeah. And the other is Bunny. Yeah. Loudermilk's the one that said it, the uh, Iowa workshop, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, okay. And so Loudermilk kind of, follow, like, it, it, it kind of asks... Does it matter whether you're the one who's good? Like, you know, what like what 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 does authenticity mean in, in a world where we're trying to find like, you know, I guess to quote the title, real, like real talent, you know? Because he's basically been pe- plagiarizing a friend. And even after he it's it's discovered that he's been plagiarizing that friend, he still gets all of his contracts and all of his approbation, you know? And then Bunny is another novel set in an MFA program. I believe that one is based off the Brown MFA workshop. And it is, it follows a group of women who basically create this clique. And it gets sort of, I guess you could say, paranormal in a sense where their characters start to come and come to life. You know, I'm, I'm just quoting Hermione on this, but basically she calls them basic. You know, before we get into the books themselves, I guess, we're talking about writing novels that are about MFA programs, which I could not 
If if you're gonna ask me like to read these novels, I couldn't have cared less. But Hermione does make me care. Like they, she does make me interested in them. But yeah, I mean they're they're inherently autofictive in the sense that these people both went to Iowa and Brown. You know, this was they are they're either satires, parodies, or sometimes just critical of the programs they came from. You know, even if indirectly. But yeah, I mean I think it's uh, more to me. I'll t- I'll give my first take, and then you know, I'll I'll, I'll hear from you guys. But to me. My first thought was, despite how good this article is, despite how interested it made me in these books, I'm like, really? Like, we can't write about anything except our own writing and, like, our process of coming to write and this industry that is self-sustainable because we keep shelling out money to, quote-unquote, learn how to write, which are all great questions that Hermione poses in in her article. You know, what does it mean to to learn how do you teach you know all this all this stuff but yeah so really for me despite how promising Hermione makes the work sound I'm like there's a there's a lot of interesting stuff in in existence right now do we really have to be writing about ourselves well there's something sort of fantastically decadent about writing about writing programs these writing programs themselves being self-selecting, very self-reflexive. The purpose of them is to teach craft and to stoke talent and to try and celebrate, hopefully, the originality of some of your students, which seems to be what some of these books that Hermione's article is citing are partially about. The maxims of the MFA program are things like, you know, find your voice or show and not tell or write what you know, all of what she mentions in the article. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it seems like the one that really sticks is write what you know. And being a 25-year-old in a program like, you know, Sarah Lawrence, like the one that we went to, or in, you know, NYC or Columbia or any one of these New York programs especially, which gather so many people every year, there's a sense of immediate limitation being a 25-year-old in a writing workshop and trying to write about anything beyond your own experience. The yeah, it's, quite, a, it's a problem that the, the school itself cannot solve. It's impossible. It's a problem of experience. Right. Well, not only do these schools not... Not only are the schools not able to solve them, but I would argue the schools actually stoke that and encourage that. They encourage that kind of self-examination, but it often comes out in a very vain and self-serving kind of way. You know, in our program, for example, we had a lot of nonfiction students, some of whom we were friends with, some of whom we were not. But a lot of the work that was produced by those students, to me, always felt very solipsistic and devoid of any broader awareness outside of their own experience, which sounds harsh, but I think I think it's accurate to the way any 25-year-old who's in this cloister who has not much life experience and not much time having worked on their craft, that's about the only thing you could produce under those circumstances. And it seems now like that is institutionalizing itself as a form of writing. And that, and that might explain why autofiction has bloomed so much in the last decade, because these programs are producing these kinds of students who are encouraged to do this kind of work. Yeah, I, and uh, you know that that made me think that has autofiction not grown in tandem or parallel to the personal essay? Has the has the personal essay always been this big? Well, the personal essay is the other side of it, and we see yeah. plenty of plenty of examples of that in this last decade as well. I'm thinking of a book like, say, The Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson, which is actually, I think, a very a very good collection of personal essays that sort of transcends the kind of solipsism that I think a lot of autofiction and uh, personal essay writing suffers from. But yeah, we've seen an equally large sort of profusion of uh, of personal essays as well in the nonfiction community, in addition to uh, the me novels. Yeah, and and it's I don't know from my from my end, I have experience with the personal essay, 
I don't think I have experience with the autofiction. I don't know. Like, uh, you guys have all read Emerald City. I would not call that autofiction. It's, like, too detached from my own experience. Uh, There are elements in my life. But the in the personal essay, you know, I think you have to come to it, and the first thing you have to ask yourself is, how do I make this universal? It sounds so obvious. It's almost cliche, right? You know? Like, how do I make this universal? And I think some of the th- some of the essays that uh, I read, where they fail is kind of been asking that first question. It's like, why should I care? It sounds fucked up. It's like you know, you know, you write an, like I just wrote an essay about how my dog got hit by a car, and if I read that, and I didn't, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, you know, maybe forty people got drone struck in Syria today. So why should I care about your dog? <laughs> that's not, I know that sounds kind of harsh, but but seri- I'm, I'm serious. Like if you if there's no if there's no universal message wrapped up in what you're writing, it's it is kind of pointless. Well, not to you it's know, for your friends and family. Not to just fall back on cliches again, but you know the universal emerges from the particular. I mean, you can't write something that is universal because yeah. there, there really is no one universal experience. I guess you have to put someone you have to put someone in in your shoes and say you see how you would you would react Maybe this so. way as well. Um, you know, one one point that I want to make about writing about writers. And this is kind of tricky, so I hope that I can make this clear. But I think that a writer is as good a subject for a work of fiction as anything else. And whether that work of fiction is itself a piece of writing, like a novel or a short story, or if it's a film or a play about a writer, if you are a writer, if you're writing a novel or a short story, and you happen to be writing about a character who is a writer, then naturally you'll be accused of you know navel-gazing in a way that you wouldn't be if you were, say, writing a novel about a painter, a mm-hmm. different kind of creative type. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I know that we've all seen Fellini's Eight and a Half. That's a film about a filmmaker. Very clearly, I mean, that is very clearly a work of autofiction, mm-hmm. and I don't mm-hmm. think anyone would deny its self-indulgence. You know, I, that, I, I think that I think that's a good point that you just brought up. I don't know if I would agree if that's an autofiction. Well, it's a fantasy. It is certainly. a fantasy. It's it's like you know, but I mean, he the film is called Eight and a Half, and, and Fellini considered it his eighth and a half movie. He had made I think he made eight films before, and then you know, like a segment in another kind of film. So, so I mean, he, it's it's clearly the work of someone who is looking inward. Yeah, 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 but but eight and a half is also obviously comical and self-deprecating, which a lot of autofiction is not. A lot of autofiction right. is very self-serious. It's extremely, well, it's but, extremely serious. It's extremely everything's so grave and like so. Instead of becoming the universal, it's like the universe becomes the person. You right. Know? It, mm-hmm. I think it's about the the way in which it's directed. The autofiction novels that I've read that have been written in recent years to me seem to be very inwardly directed. Yeah. And I think that's that's they they succumb to a kind of solipsism as a result of that. But a you know a work like Eight and a Half by Fellini is very self aware, and I think that's what redeems it. And I should say as well that you know my first novel is also about a writer, so I'm familiar with this as well. But you know in my novel, my protagonist is a, a literary critic and kind of a cultural critic, and I take the piss out of that personality. He is a self serious person, but he's offered up to the mockery of others. And so the novel has a kind of comedy to it that I think is redemptive because I was very conscious of the fact that writing about writers tends towards that kind of self-seriousness. And I desperately mm-hmm. wanted to avoid that. So injecting comedy and irony into it is a way of saving yourself from that solipsism. Right, right. right. It's now been uh, almost half an hour and we haven't heard from from George. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if if George is out there just... Just oh, our producers are saying fifteen minutes. I've got a I've got a K hole time warp going on. Um, 
but yeah, I'm just wondering, is George is George just sipping George pours down there? Is George petting his cat? It's a, I'm doing what both. Is, it's what a is George doing? I'm drinking a High Life. I'm it's petting a, oh, my cat. You're drinking High Life? Hell yeah, High Life. Champagne of beers, buddy. Oh my, uh, my God. High Life. Pour one out for Devin. Cat. And I'm I'm uh, absorbing your commentary. I want you know I I want to go back to uh, somebody mentioned MFA maxims right most of which were mentioned in the article write what you know et cetera et cetera and then we were talking about right. making, making the universal personal the personal universal I think that's that's answering the so what question right and when we talk about something that's auto fictional something like what well, I mean you we, we were talking about eight and a half I think he he I think Fellini answers that so what question it's so what for art so what for cinema I mean it's an ars poetica in addition to being a sort of personal artistic struggle film right and he does as Jared said takes the piss out of himself he's he's I mean I, I think about the scene where he's in the sort of um, orphanage house again as an adult and he's got all these lovers and and fascinations around him and they're mocking him you know i mean they're they're infantilizing him and and teasing him for not being able to make up his mind in the film i mean it really is fellini sort of calling himself a, a perverted little child for for better part of three hours you know <laughs> and and i think that's that's interesting of course and i mean it is about the making of art it is about the making of cinema and as something that that you know people who are interested in the creative process can get behind but answering answering that so what question i think a lot of our colleagues in the mfa program at sarah lawrence who wrote so-called nonfiction, and and i think is one of the few nonfiction programs in most mfa programs of, of which i'm aware I'm, I'm down here at the university of florida where of course my partners in the mfa program and they do not have a nonfiction program. They have a poetry program and a fiction program, and that is it. So interesting. I, but I mean, you know, when we talk about writing nonfiction, we we have to answer the so what question. There is this tendency, I think, for all artists and writers to you know want to want to make something and then put it on the fridge. Oh, I made this. Put it put it on the fridge with a little magnet. I made it, so it's good, right? But answering the so what <laughs> answering the so what question is a different thing altogether. Like really, and when you st when you start asking yourself that about your own work, why should anybody give half a hairy shit about what I'm doing right here, right? Then you realize <laughs> you that know you I'm, have to I'm do not going to lie. I think it's way better. Yeah, that that's uh, I'll, I'll just for a second. I want to tell you that that's a way better question than the, you know is this universal? Like that that really is like. That that is really the question I'm asking before I sit down to write yeah. anything. It's who, like who, who gives, gives a, a shit? Fuck yeah. about well, that's what I'm another about to write. that that's another MFA question. Like it's it, another way of asking that question is like, what are the stakes? You know, like why mm -hmm. am I reading this? Why does yeah. this why yep. does this matter? And I think those are valid questions. But at the same time, all good art is self justifying. All good art makes you care about it, regardless of its subject. Would you say that yeah. about a Would you say that about a book like Underworld? Like, why does this matter? Like, what like what is this about? Underworld is about everything, and it's about nothing, you know. And it's eight hundred pages, and it sustains my interest because it's self-justifying. What makes it yeah, self-justifying? I mean, I'd like to know, in your opinion, what makes it self-justifying. <laughs> well, no, George, you, br you bring up a really good point. I mean, and, and we can we can get into Underworld specifically if we want to, but just really quick, I wanted to, I do, I do want to say that, like, I, I think that is a question that should be taught and that should be really put up on a pedestal at these programs. Like, if they're really interested in teaching writing and you can't fast-forward someone's experience, you know, you can't give them 25 years to understand the world better and to understand that these little things, like... Like if you write an if you write a story that revolves around Instagram, there's a ninety nine percent chance I don't give a fuck. You know, 
And and I really think that should be the first question. I mean, you know, uh, you know, not sorry, not to interrupt, but I, uh, like, you know, all this stuff about craft and like how to write, it's all very import- important. But it's stuff that really just comes from writing and writing and writing. I don't know how do we how do you infuse that? I'm not really sure. I th- I think we have to answer that for ourselves too. If you don't know why you were sitting down to write a piece of fiction, and if you don't know why what you're sitting down to write has to be a piece of fiction then you you've got to answer you you have to ask different questions why 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 am i doing this what compels me to do this what do i want out of this activity out of this exercise because if you're not writing it for your own edification then no reader presumably is going to receive some sense of edification from it it's just going to be a you know sound and fury signifying right. nothing i think if 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 you've got a strong ethos about what you want to do what you want to see what you want to play with and explore then that that sort of does what i think jared was getting at was was that sort of self justification yeah yeah and you know to make <laughs> and to and to just i guess as an example of how complicated this business is you know on the other hand i almost feel like to be a writer you also have to have this feeling of, I don't need to ask myself why, because I just want to, I just need to, you know? I mean, obviously that's another cliche. It's like, I write because I need to, but like, I, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. When I sit down, these questions are usually about a, a specific piece that I'm sitting down to work, to work on, but I never have to ask myself why I'm writing. And that's because the question is self, is, is self-evident, you know, it's almost axiomatic. I'm I'm writing because it comes from this place that I really can't describe that just like compels me to write. So it's a paradox really. Like you do have to ask that question. You do, or else, you know, you'll just go off on some desultory tangent and like no one and and then it goes like who gives a flying fuck, you know? But but in terms of like the the vocation itself, yeah, it's it's almost a a self evident question. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, some of the nonfiction writers in our program who would read at, at the events that we had. And and some of them were, were very moved, uh, visibly moved by their own work. I think a lot of them probably felt something similar to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Their work was desperately important to them. Uh-huh. So I think it's hard to, to really make yes. any definite claims about this. Because on one hand, I, I would like to believe that if the writer cares passionately about their subject and they have at least some skill, then, then they should be able to make it fascinating for <laughs> the reader. I mean... I, I think I think even just the the proliferation of hyper specific documentaries particularly on Netflix speaks to that. I mean, you know, you can watch you can watch an entire documentary on Netflix about, you know, how sake is made and most people have never really wondered about that, but mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, millions of people watch that. So I think on one hand, you know, I'd like to believe that, you know, if you are passionate about something, you should be able to convey that passion to a third party even if it's something that they've never thought about before. But on the other hand, that doesn't happen most of the yeah, time. Yeah, I was about to ask how. <laughs> and, that, and again, we come back to Hermione's essay. It's just like, I'm actually going to scroll and find the part where she asks those specific questions. In the meantime, I'd just like to say regarding sort of what, what Seth was saying earlier, is that I think successful work of autofiction could be defined as a work that is a work in which the persona of the writer is very closely allied with that of the capital A author. And the capital A author is the sort of focus of the of the world, but it's able to kind of transcend its own self-interest, whereas an unsuccessful work of autofiction is just all about me and about my experience and my reality and my truth. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't escape the bonds of its own right. self-examination. It can become kind of uh, inverse. 
And I think a good example of that, and I say this with all respect to Ben Lerner because I think he's a good writer, but I, I found that 1004 succumbed to that kind of self-interest and solipsism that a work like Atoka Station didn't. Atoka Station seemed to have much more self-awareness. I completely agree. I think it's amazing to me how such a smart and talented writer could write a book that I really just... I did. I I was dragging myself across the finish line, you know. But a work like 1004, very similar to Eight and a Half, is concerned with authenticity, with how to how to make art, how to write a novel during this particular time, or how to make a film at this particular juncture in your life creatively. Both both of those works bend toward the question of of authenticity and examine their own kind of ineptness at the particular moment in which they're being created. So they're actually very similar to each other in that way, I think. Well, something that you were hinting at but didn't really say outright is that, you know, a work of autofiction should be just as pleasing to someone who doesn't know that it's autofiction as it would be to someone who does. In yeah, other it's words, like you don't even that, need to know that, that well, well, that's the, their the interest, right? the int- I mean, in the case of On the Road, I would say about half the interest in that book comes from people who are interested in Jack Kerouac and the beat lifestyle. Right, right. That's why I don't whereas, care about the where, book. Whereas, no, but the, the other half, the reason that that book endures is because of the prose. Yeah. The other half is the 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 aesthetic value of that work, which I, I would argue it has You stand much, by it. Well, I, I stand by Kerouac <laughs> in general. I'm not going to, you know, On the Road is not my favorite work. Of yeah, his, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I, I think of Kerouac as a poet primarily, whereas most people think of him as a novelist. Right. I see. I see. Well, if I can just interject for one second, I'm just going to, I'm going to put this out here and I'm just going to read this very short section of uh, Hermione's essay just to put these uh, three kind of, you know, MFA questions out there that kind of undergird programs you know, everywhere. With this professionalization, indeed an institutionalization of a nation's art form, three injunctions popularized by the MFA become holy writ. Write what you know, show, don't tell, and find your voice. Of this trinity, only the second speaks explicitly to craft and seems readily practicable. It's the first and last dicta, however, that have proved the most influential, not through their utility, but through their confounding simplicity. The question is, isn't whether you should cultivate knowledge or voice. The question instead is a screamed, yes, but how? Which is kind of, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a referendum on F- MFA programs, which isn't, we wouldn't be the first people to, to do that, you know? I mean, there's so many, there are so many writers paying to learn how to write. It's like, mm. you know. Most of those people are not writers. Ooh, wow! Shots fired. <laughs> no, it's well, it's it's George. true though. Like just statistically speaking, uh, <laughs> most of those people will not be writing five years after those programs are finished. That was the that was the that was like my favorite thing that Garth ever said. Garth mm, Hallberg. Yeah, I was like, I was like, that was probably the truest thing I've ever heard in this in this room. And by the way, in you Garth's know? in Garth's lessons and in his his craft talk, which I have on tape and and watch yearly. You know, he he does exactly what we were talking about before, which is take the emphasis off of the craft, i.e. the the how, and puts it onto more almost spiritual questions of why. Why? I mean, that's how he ends the talk. He says, "What will you be writing for?" And yeah, I mean, it's it's true. Most uh, you know, forget about publication and success or whatever. Most people who go to MFA programs will probably not be writing at all. You know, within as Jared said, within a few years of. I mean, I several of our colleagues have gone off in um, very different kind of career directions and things like that mm-hmm. um, since graduating. So, But anyway, I was just kind of a minor joke I was making. <laughs> they're, they're not right. No, it's but, true. I mean, they're it's not. true, though. Yeah, so we, uh, we, we got a couple books that we kind of threw out there. You know, we had 1004. But I kind of want to go back to something 
I guess, quite questioning exactly like what autofiction is. And actually, as an example of what good, really good autofiction might be, I really honed in on Giovanni's room because, you know, I can't decide if that's really like a Romana cliff or like autofiction or if those are, if one subsumes the other, you know, most likely autofiction subsuming Romana cliff. Well, but. I think Romana cliff is, Romana cliff is just an old French term for what we're now calling autofiction. I think they're essentially the same thing. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's almost like Romana cliff has this like peculiarity to it. Like I'm, I'm going to, here's what I'm I think gonna... of when I hear the term Romana clay. Um, ooh, which is how it's ooh. pronounced, by the way. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm not just going to go along with saying it wrong. But what I what I think of when I think of Romana Clay is 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 a work of fiction where there in in which there is some kind of one to one correspondence with reality. For example, Citizen Kane is a Romana Clay about will. Uh, about William Randolph Hearst. I mean, it's very, it's it's very clearly based on him, but it's mm-hmm. it's not explicitly about him. That's how. So that's how I think of Romana Clay. You know, the, Google's definition is a novel in which real people or events appear with invented names, <laughs> which is Kerouac. I mean, that's that's <laughs> Kerouac wrote about his buddies and just changed the names. Yeah, it does. It does kind of point to like a broader sense of like autofiction or like you know. I don't know. But yeah, you're you're pretty much right. It kind of is synonymous. But something like Giovanni's room is like I mean the decision to make his character white, for example. It's just these little things. It's like how much does this distance from autofiction? I mean cuz you know, I mean does anyone know that did Baldwin have a experience an experience resembling that one in the sense of like was there was there an affair? In in you know and we need Devin here for in that. France like you know what in Paris was there I don't know but I'd have to imagine yeah. that something similar to that probably occurred I mean he was living in Paris at the time yeah but it's also it's it also wouldn't be insane to say he's a fiction writer he came up with a lot of that shit you know what mm-hmm. I mean like maybe maybe an affair like that never really did happen maybe you know I'm sure he's had ones that he drew from there's no doubt about that but mm-hmm. yeah well Baldwin wrote that book I guess when he was quite young and. Uh, you know, when you're when you're younger, you write, I think, a little closer to life because at that point, it's right. all you have. Right. A lot of a lot right. of early novels by writers are semi-biographical. Even a book like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by Joyce has a, has a right. lot of biographical elements to that. And we think mm-hmm. of Stephen mm-hmm. Dedalus as being a stand in for Joyce. And yet we wouldn't define that as being a Ramona Clef per se, like on the road. So and there are there are sort of gradation there Why are not? gradations here between you, th- you think well, i don't know i just think that there are gradations here between you know on one end a work of straight fiction a work of fiction that has autobiographical elements to it ramona clay and then something like autofiction which is a very it uh, autofiction invites the reader to see the persona as the the author the person holding the pen it tries to collapse the space between the the fictional conceit and the the written reality. Right. But I mean again that's that was one of the first things that I said. I don't think the reader even needs an invitation to do that. Readers tend to just do that on their own. I mean if you go to any Q&A for any book launch for any novel that comes out, invariably someone will ask, you know, is this based on your life? Which is, is dependent the, on what uh, which do you I don't know if you agree, but I think it's def- very dependent on the material sometimes. We just had Yeah, Kwame, I mean if if we had Kwame uh, Akupu uh, Doku on mm-hmm. uh, last week, I want to say. Well, by the time this this episode drops, I'm not really sure when that'll be, but uh he was talking about how that question is often associated with black writers. You know, to you know, to what extent, I'm not sure, but I definitely agreed with him in the sense that like there's almost this like I, I called it like drama porn. 
It's like, you know, like, especially white people in America, they're like, oh, I really want to know about that struggle. You know, Mm. I don't know. This this is a little off base, but it it does go back to why do people ask that question? When do people ask that question? Because I don't think they're asking that about Giovanni's room. If you you just, I mean, if you've just written a novel like Master and Commander, they're not going to ask you if it's based on your life. If you've just written a novel like Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, you know, a historical work, right. then obviously people are not going to ask that if it's any kind of genre fiction. But when it, th- here's the thing. If you tell someone that you write fiction, they ask you what genre you write in. And if you can't name a genre, then they assume that you write about yourself. Their, I mean, their heads explode. If you're, talking about, <laughs> if you're talking about detective fiction or horror or anything else like that, then people are not going to ask you those kinds of questions. If yeah. you are Michael Chabon and you've just written Moonglow, which is about your grandfather, you know, telling you his life story from his deathbed mm-hmm. and has the same last name as you, then people are going to ask you which parts of it are real and which parts of it are made And up. you're going to go, what the fuck do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have to say, autofiction, I just think it's it's such a an unfortunate name. There's, there's something onanistic about it, isn't there? It, there is. I can't stop thinking of like auto as, as fi- like autoerotic asphyxi- mm-hmm. asphyxiation or something. And, <laughs> and, and, and like, honestly, that's the thing. It's like... It, there really is something onanistic about it. And like, it really is revealing, you know? And it's just like unabashedly, it's like, this is autofiction. And I really don't want to sit here and act like everyone who's writing about themselves or their lives is just jerking off on the page. Like, it's not true. But I do think that when be- something becomes an epidemic, you know, it's it's a problem, you know? It's like, you know, when you have tens of thousands of 20-somethings out there at MFA programs... And I can see it. I can see it in some of the submissions I get. I just read a submission and I was like, my God, this this person can write. This this person can string a goddamn phrase together, you know? But it's like, it's amazing the contrast between the prose and the turns of phrase and the just absolute almost almost just straight up immature level of subject matter and the way it's being handled and rendered, you know? So I don't know. It's like, it's almost like I do view it as a problem, like an epidemic. And I don't know how much it's tied to the personal essay. I don't know what you guys feel about that. I don't really read tons of personal essays. I'm usually referred to them. So maybe I'm all, my experiences are mm-hmm. haven't less, left as much of a sour taste in my mouth. Well, is it, is it really all that surprising in the age of, of digital avatars and the age of Facebook and Instagram and this kind of relentless broadcasting of everything that we're doing in our lives and this uh, relentless attention seeking from the world. I mean, that's why I started by saying that I think that autofiction is the literary equivalent of a selfie because it does feel very self-serving. Right, right. I think that's one of the things that distinguishes some of the more recent autofiction books written by young writers than than from something like Giovanni's Rumor on the Road because those are much more mature works. I said I love it because we had Seth shaking his head over here. We have a well, no, I just a disagreement. I, well, Jared, I, just... I love I love disagreement. I love contention. <laughs> I love drama. I no, just I mean wanna, I, I want to I want to stoke it. I want to foment. <laughs> And uh, okay, yeah. Let's, I think let's it's hear it. I think it's easy to to make that argument and and to blame social media for a lot of the world's ills. And certainly, we can't ignore it completely. But and but, there's there's definitely truth. To well, it. I'm not blaming, but, right, I'm not but, blaming but, social but, but, media. But I, I, I'm just I, saying I, that it fits into the gestalt of the whole thing. I mean, I think there's a reason for it. Okay, sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the part that I and if I haven't said this already, I I just I don't think we're living in an age of autofiction any more than we were before. I, I this is nothing new. I, I, can, I, think I can agree with that to some I extent. Think it's, I, it's, I think it's the but but the, the mode. 
Well, but it's the same way. It's it, the same way its that um, that it's the same way that representational painting changed once photography came on the scene. Sure, sure. Once you had a photograph that could mechanically reproduce, you know, something in the real world, mm-hmm. then painting became more abstract in response. I see. Um, because I see. you no longer needed you need to keep a painter to to do you know portraits and landscapes. So it's the so it's the, it's the same. I think that social media is probably having a, a similar influence. And by the way. I don't think any of us have read it, but I mean, we're basically talking around the new Megan Boyle book, which is called Live Blog. Um, Tyrant published it. It's about an 800-page book. Oh, I and heard about for, this. Uh, I, I don't know for how long. Maybe it was a year. Maybe it was a month. I have no idea. I haven't read the book, but Megan Boyle live blogged what, everything that she did for a certain period of time. So this is sort of a merger of social media and autofiction in a way that sounds hellish, but again, I have not read it, so I cannot pass judgment on the text. Yeah, well, I'm not. Yeah, no. My first thought was, if you didn't do anything with that material, and it's just, and it's basically unedited, there's zero chance I'm going to read that book. Yeah, it doesn't sound pleasant. I'll be honest. 800 pages of of just talking about what you're doing. I mean, it seems like a present tense self-narration. I am picking up the cup. I am taking a sip. But of course, as Seth said, I mean, we haven't read it. Who knows? It could be brilliant. You know, I mean, it would, it would take one hell of a writer to, to make that interesting. She could be going through something, you know, that makes it inherently, you know, viable as, mm-hmm. as, as something to be published. But and so, like, I, I don't want to say that, like, there's no chance I would read it. But I'm saying, like, if it's if this is just some normal person and it's an unedited transcript, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I that that's that's Insane. But it's also a question <laughs> of the of the format of the live blog format. You know, from from what I understand of this book, it's you know it's not written in full prose sentences. It is written as one would write, you know, uh, a status update or something to that effect. So, and frankly, I mean, it sounds like George Costanza's pitch for the show about nothing, <laughs> um, which is which is no, nothing happened to you on the way to work. Nothing happened. You got up, you went to work, and that's that's an episode. That's a show. That's what it sounds like to me. And why yeah, am I and, watching? And, and that's a, that that because <laughs> it's on TV. And and and, and no, that go, that brings us back to the self justification. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, why why should I read something? Because it's good, you know? And so then it comes back to the whole thing of MFA programs. It's like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, you know, it's just it's it's a cycle of questions that I don't mm-hmm. know that the MFA program can solve. I I do think there should be schools for craft, but I think we all agree here that we're oversaturated. And and a large majority of the people that are going to these programs are not going to be writing or they're not going to be writing creatively right and i don't know like many things in our world today i just think there's more a more efficient alternative mm-hmm. well i don't, I don't know, know what that is i don't know about you guys but, um, but i always found the craft classes at sarah lawrence much more informative and much more instructive than any of the workshops mm. hmm. well because the focus is on reading great works exactly. of literature and, 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 and that's how, and on, that's how more, you more that's on, how you learn the craft, from peer you review know? you don't learn much from peer review you oh i have to i have to, by, I have to disagree i I, you do learn by studying the great, but but I think being in a room with people and and trying to explain to someone why what they're doing isn't working is as valuable to how you write your own stuff. It, you know, you you you, you true, but I, what about, I couldn't but, agree more. What about when your peers are just not very good critics or not very good readers, which is often the case in those. Classes? Oh, well, I don't I don't think it makes a difference. I don't I don't think what they're saying about your work is 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 the important thing. I think that you you have their work in front of you. Mm. You have to make comments when you come into class. You've got you know ten poems, three short stories, whatever it is, and you have to make a comment. 
And so you start getting into it. You start looking yeah. at it. You start taking it apart. Now, I mean, reading the classics tells you what a novel is, what a book of poetry is. It, it guides you in what you want to do. It informs you, I think, in, in a kind of, as we, we already said it, we, a kind of spiritual way as an artist. But I think when you're talking about sentence to sentence, line to line, stanza to stanza, that's that's what you get out of the workshop if you're vigilant. Now, I mean, if you don't if you don't feel you know that that your that your comments are are in any way enhancing what you already know, then then perhaps not. Uh, you know, but I I got a tremendous degree of of satisfaction, uh, and I think became a better period to period writer from those workshops. You know, lit, mm-hmm. litigating the the syntax, the I'll, diction, uh, things like this. Anyway, I'll no I. I... George, no, George, I, my experience very much aligns with yours. Um, I got way more out of workshop by figuring out what was wrong. To, to be able to articulate what was wrong with a story or what was working was infinitely insightful and oh, yeah. into my process, you know, but, but, but to Jared's point, you know, what I did when I found myself in a, in a class where there were I, I didn't trust some of the opinions, you know. I, I never, I never was in a class where I didn't trust anyone's opinion. I mean, to to to, I, I trusted I a lot of people's opinions. <laughs> Jared used to throw away all his comments, <laughs> throw them in the trash. Well, well, I was, I was gonna say, to me, to me, it takes a very intelligent, studied individual to articulate what's like really going on with your story, right? But it takes someone who's barely conscious to point out where, if something's going wrong. And so I would never, I would, I would rarely say, Oh, I'm an, I would rarely take the suggestions, but I would always look at what they were pointing to. Mm. And then I would say, okay, what, what's wrong here? Cause clearly something's wrong. And like 90, you know, you know, some, <laughs> some very high percentage of the time, what they suggested, I was like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Uh, but, but what they were pointing to is, was often very accurate. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to bring up now something I actually don't know too much about myself, but, uh, I want to talk about that Catwoman story. Mm. Seth, do you want to give a little introduction about, about what, what that's all about and and how it ties into auto fiction? Right. So this, this was, this was a short story written, uh, published in the New Yorker, I think in maybe 2016. I, I can't remember the name of the author, so we'll have to we'll have to look that up to give credit where it's due. Um, I know she has a book that just came out, a collection of short stories. Anyway, you know the the story as I remember it was about a series of just cringe-inducingly bad dates with 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 this guy. And I think there was this kind of in the way they were written, they made you cringe, or, or yeah, or, well, yeah, it's it, it's a series of bad dates with with a guy, just a kind of. Uh, uh, crossed wires and miscommunications and just sort of a borderline behavior. Sounds like a um, Seinfeld episode. <laughs> well, except not really that funny. Um, it's, I think a lot of people found the story so relatable and so just kind of mundane that they didn't think it could be fiction because it didn't seem grand enough to have even been invented. It's like if, if I were to write a short story that was just narrating me walking to work from uh, the subway, you know, nobody would, th- it, it, it just seems so, so every day that nobody would. So anyway, I now, pe- I people, now want you to email me every morning yeah. when you get to work. And I can, I and then, I, I can, want a I want a very literary yeah. uh, little just flat piece of flash auto fiction. I'll send so you that a, means that you got to embellish it a little I'll bit. Send, okay? I'll send you a haiku about my commute every day. <laughs> that's not what I asked for, but that's, that's, that what, will, that's, that's the compromise. That's, accept, that's acceptable for the time. Anyway, the, the point is that you know a lot of people read this story in The New Yorker and I think didn't realize it was fiction. I think even some of the people who saw that it was printed as fiction 
um, still thought that, oh, they, they had some kind of inside line and that, no, it wasn't really fiction. I see. And it just seemed like such a, it seemed like such a silly debate because let's say it's not fiction. Let's say everything happened exactly the way it's reported in the story. Then that it doesn't really change the way that anyone would read that mm-hmm, story, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, um, so that's you know I think I think whatever literary uh, merit the story has, which it sounds is, like, which I would much. I would say is not much. It has very little to do with whether it is fiction or not. Yeah. But of course, it was published as fiction, and so I'm reading it as fiction. Most people don't read short stories, so when people read something that that's that short, they assume it's an essay or, or something, some mm-hmm. kind of profile or something like that. So it's it sounds like on your end you don't see these times as particularly as a blight on the autofiction enterprise. Like you don't you don't think it's like because to me I'm wonder, I'm wondering because I I'm thinking about Twitter right now. Mm-hmm. I go on Twitter and I see people promoting their own books. A lot that they're I don't see I see more genre fiction than mm-hmm. autofiction. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, obviously these <laughs> this isn't hard data. I'm wondering if the MFA program is in some way if you don't have the experience to write like you know something more purely fictive and it'd be more imaginative on a more uh, universal scale is that is that pressure to publish to write is that what's driving people to autofiction because i do think there is an uptick i don't think it's like and we won't see it in the published realm because what gets published is supposedly better than what doesn't you know so the so the 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 statistics are going to stay the same on that. There's no more people writing mm-hmm. better autofiction than there were before. But at the same time, I did see it in, I, in in school, and there is a whole there is a whole genre of nonfiction taught at mm-hmm. Sarah Lawrence, and a lot of that right. was was you know the but, personal essay. But for me, what we're talking about as autofiction, which is a very broad term that we're using, it has been such an integral part of literary fiction for hundreds of years, and so it's it's hard for me to see this as some kind of new thing. I mean, even if we're talking about something like Proust, if we're talking about In Search of Lost Time. Um, oh, George, tell your joke. Tell your joke about Proust. Do I have a joke about Proust? Yeah, jo- okay, so so, so Jared goes and visits uh, Proust's grave, and when he gets back, George, <laughs> our producers are excited about this, and when he gets back, he tells us, hey, I visited Proust's grave, and uh, George goes, did he have seven headstones where one would do? <laughs> Man, I'm witty. I completely forgot I'd said that. I know. Yeah, you were on your game. Yeah, that day, yeah. George, George, you, you know, the, the object of life is to drink away memory of your own jokes. Hey, you know? check, checkmate, buddy. I've done it. I've done it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's oh, that's that? that's literally one of the best like spontaneous mm. jokes I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I'm good for something even well, if I can't so, remember. Uh, I want to <laughs> go ahead. I'm done. Seth, you don't think you know? Seth, you're right that autobiographical writing is not new, especially. I mean, it's been a part of at least the novel for almost as long as the novel's been around. But you don't think there's something terminal? about the state that we're in you don't think there's something terminal about novels that are you don't think there's something terminal about novels that are about mfa programs well again i mean the the novel we were talking about earlier that's set in an mfa program i haven't read it so i I can't really pass judgment on it now the fact is i you know i'm i'm to some extent i'm i'm bluffing here because i don't actually read that much 
contemporary fiction, and maybe that is to my detriment. But I, you know, I try to keep abreast of criticism, so at least I know what the landscape looks like. But I, I don't see, I don't see novels about MFA programs or the MFA industrial complex. I don't see those, you know, kinds of novels flying off the bookstores, bookstore shelves. You know, I none, none of the, none of the, none of the big literary novels that have sold reasonably well in recent years, whether it's City on Fire or The Goldfinch. Well, The City on Fire did not sell reasonably well, to my to my knowledge. Is it? Is I don't know true? how it. I don't know how it. Well, that was kind of when it first came out, so it, it could have had uh, an extended shelf life. What whatever the result was, it was a book that that Knopf was pushing very hard. Yeah. Well, they did um, invest a fuck ton of. They money invested into a lot it, of so they'd, money. They'd, in they'd, it. they'd be you know um, they'd be. But so wise at least at least that's an <laughs> indicator. At, at, whether it sold well or not, at least it's an indicator of of where um, publishing was, at least at that point, that they were willing to put that much money behind a book like that, which, again, is a, is a historical novel. And from the sound of it, uh, you know, an autobiographical one in its own way. I mean, every interview Garth has done, and I say Garth like I know him, you know, we had his class like five years ago, but... Uh, um, we cool. He, uh, he, he always talks about his own experience coming out to New York City as a kid. You know, I mean, he grew up, I think, in Louisiana, so, so again, it's a novel that, you know, is coming from a very deeply personal feeling, even though all the characters are an event and many of the events are invented. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm somewhere between you guys. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about the MFA novel, but I do think that there needs to be a goddamn good reason. But because it, if not, you can pull it off, then that's if that's you can pull matters. it off. Yeah. It, again, it all matters. Of it, All that matters is, is it good? That's all that matters. I do think. The only thing for me is I, I I wouldn't say terminal. That's that's a pretty you know yeah I'm not sure what you mean by that term. permanent word. But I, I I would say that of everything in the universe to write about, mm-hmm. writing about writers, whether yourself or like a group of writers or you know the MFA program itself. I'm I'm really I'm I'm reaching for words here because I, I really am between you guys. I don't have anything as absolute to say as Jared does. At, at the same time, I do think there it I, all I can say is I do think it's an issue. I do think it's a symptom of something. I don't know what it is. But like if you told me there's a new novel out set in Iowa's workshop, you know, or mm-hmm. Brown's work like it's really, I, I have to, I have to hear user reviews first. That's it. Like I, I won't, I will not go out and buy that novel myself. And, and, and like, I hate to say it, like, you know, it's a, like, I don't, I don't want to shit on these people's work. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, they poured just as much energy into it as I did mine. You know, it's, it's not that it's just, and maybe I'm speaking for a larger population too, because I, I just, I, I find it hard to believe that people are going to get interested in something like the MFA program or something like you know, in something like 1004, where it's like, we're talking about writing so much, it's about nothing, really. Like, I really couldn't tell you what that book is about, except for maybe deciding to have a baby with a friend, you who, know? Who published 1004, by the way? Does anyone know? No, I actually because don't. Faber. Faber? Yeah. Because a lot of these books are being published by specialty. I mean, this live blog book, that was published by Tyrant, you Tyrant, know? That wasn't yeah. published by Penguin or something. Right, right. You know, it's, it's an, it's, I, I think if anything, it's kind of a, a niche. I mean, you know, and, and frankly, a lot of people who were doing this thing in the early 2000s were associated with the dreaded alt-lit movement, especially people like Tao Lin. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tao okay. Lin is kind of 21st century auto 
fiction par excellence for better and especially for worse. I oh, I just heard a breathy oh god. Right, well, because Jared. Jared despises Talon. I have more mixed feelings, although I don't want to spout off on Talon right now. But 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 I mean, I think I think he don't throttle yourself. Well, I think Seth. he I think he kind of encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about. Like I said, for better and especially for worse. And he was frankly um, a. a Probably a big influence on a lot of the lesser autofiction writers that we could think of. Not Ben Lerner. He's top tier. I mean, Ben Lerner is, he's clearly a, a, like, you know, a generational talent. You know, I mean, he's, he's brilliant. He can Mm -hmm. write his ass off. It's just the subject matter, really. Well, we'll see how the Topeka school turns out. Yeah. Yeah, Well, by terminal, Seth, I meant... uh, It seems to me like we're in a period of bereavement now where so many writers feel like writing about being a writer is the only thing worth writing about which couldn't be you know any further from the case i mean i think I mean, the i think the postmodernists the the you know the the writers of the 60s and 70s kind of exhausted that terrain and now it's kind of rearing its head again um in a certain right. well, way some, there was something there was something tautological about that as well well i mean i agree i mean you know jonathan bomback for example a kind of lesser known postmodern writer father of noah bomback god bless him but i mean every novel about infidelity it's like just give it a rest bless his um, heart bless his heart i mean i i think he was a really neglected writer so i don't want to shit on him either but um but, you know, sometimes it gets a little tiresome. Or, I mean, John Barth, Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I know Jared's read a lot of Barth. And you kind of get to a dead end with that stuff. So there is a terminus. Well, no, because it's it's come, because it's come back in a <laughs> way. I mean, I think this kind of... I don't Resurrected. Know, I don't know if there's any kind of a cycle or period here, but but I think that autofiction... Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's existed throughout literary history. And there may be periods where it's more popular or more saturated in the culture than others but i don't think it's it may take different forms but but i really don't think it's fundamentally i don't think it's anything new they are they are photo negatives of each other though in a way in the sense that the the postmodern conceit is this onanistic engagement with the the persona the writer as the narrative persona whereas autofiction seems to be onanistically engaged with the persona as the capital a author hmm George, what do you think? I don't. I'm. I'm. I'm with. I'm. I'm with everybody. Frankly, I'm. I'm mixed down the middle. I can see what Jared's saying, and I especially. I especially think in, in, at this present moment, there is this sort of creative impulse, wide sort of contagion of the of the self of the me. Right. I mean, it's happening in poetry as well. If you're not writing about your identity in some way, if you're not writing about Oh yeah, uh, the, I think the it's worse thing is far more prevalent in poetry. I mean it's 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 honestly it's it's taken it over. And I'm not saying for the worst. I'm just saying that we're here so so the other day I was talking to my partner Cheyenne, who writes poetry, of course, and for the longest time she she didn't feel as though she had anything to write about because nothing really like traumatizing has ever happened to her. You know, she doesn't feel like she has some kind of deep wound to to bring up and sort of explore in the poetic medium. And I was telling her, you know, I mean, she likes to write about nature. We're both sort of naturalists and, you know, shit, write about nature. That's fine. And it's great, you know, but she's starting to sort of realize that that the things that she's read that sort of that sort of talk about, you know, a, a sense of identity or a sense of trauma or a sense of tragedy are not necessarily what you have to write if you want to if you want to partake and participate in the in the craft. Very much agreed. Uh, but it is it is mm-hmm. becoming it is becoming. I, I think I think less than terminal, which I I agree with, with what Jared was 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 saying there. But I think fatigue. I have fatigue about it. I have fatigue about uh, where I mm. come from. Yeah, that's I a have good fatigue word. about. 
you know, my, my journey to get here, you know, there's this saying now, tell your truth, tell your truth. I don't, again, I, I have to refer them to, to the, so what question to the, who gives a shit question. I'm not saying that identity and, 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 and a sense of a personal journey are not worthwhile. And I know that underrepresented, you know, peoples in this country are, are finally having an opportunity to discuss their journeys. And that's important. And I think we all need to, to read it and, and, and see the, you know, the, the changing face of the American uh, literary terrain in this way. And I think that's wonderful. But what I don't want is, is this idea that we all have to have some kind of, of tragedy to write about. I mean, we can write about mm-hmm. nature still, right? We can still write about the universe. That's what I like to write about. Just fucking planets and solar systems and shit. Like whatever I have to do to get to write about that is what I want. Now, of course, that's what I get to write about because I don't have, I don't have, I don't feel as though I have a personal story worth sharing. I haven't met that. So what question? So I don't use it in my own creativity, my own writing, but I, I feel the same way. I feel sometimes as though I, I don't have anything worth putting down in poetry anymore because I don't have, I don't have what, what seems to be succeeding in the poetic landscape. Fiction has been a lovely, a lovely, um, you know, haven for me at the moment because I, I, I don't, I don't have to, to write about me, you know, but I do, I do feel, especially in poetry that the impetus has been put on the identity of the author. And that's, that's what we're coming from. And of course, many other things too. Again, I'm not belittling current poetic landscape. I'm just saying it seems to be quite, quite popular in poetic expression now at the time, the the poetics of identity. Mm. Right. Well, this is, this shades into something that I think that we should talk about as well, which is this emerging ethic that to write about any experience other than your own is irresponsible or insensitive in some ways. Yeah, that's very true. I, I, I do I, I do wonder how much that plays into to the current epidemic of autofiction and personal essay and and George are so right. I'd like if I was the the like tally the statistics of every poet I, I go see to to read live or something. I mean, yeah, it's it's overwhelmingly about the self. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Jared. That's that's a really good point. Yeah, well, how does everybody feel about that? I, I mean, I, I expect I know how everybody feels about that. But how does everybody feel about this emerging notion that you can't write about the experience of someone else? You know, if you're a straight white male, you can't write about, you know, what it's like to be, uh, I don't know, a bisexual African American. I think it's something, uh, I'll, I'll go first. I think it's something that is inherent to the transition we're in. Uh, the, just the the infinitely ongoing transition that we'll always be in, at least in our in our lifetimes. Just about race and culture in America. It's I almost view it as a necessary outcropping of of that transition, just moving towards equality and egalitarianism, as we always will be. But then again, I don't think I think it is a symptom, and I I think it's bad for egalitarianism. In, it's in kind the of sense radical of, egalitarianism. It it well it it just it's it's. It's an oxymoron. Fiction can't exist without writing about other other people. It, plain and simple. That's it. Now, now the whole question of can can I like let's say as a as a whoever I am, can I write about you know uh, a black woman or can I write about a gay man or you know something like that? Personally, I say yes, go for it because what matters is whether it's good and whether it's true and like yeah. you know. <clears throat> but if- you know, at the same time, I'm not here to tell anyone that I'm right. That's just how I feel. And I just worry about the state of our world. And like, you know, when we, when we start getting to these kind of hypocritical elements of, of kind of progressivism where it just, it just doesn't really quite make sense to me because the, I, it, it goes against what outcome we're looking for, you know? Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's so it's, 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 it's 
crazy to think about a book like What is the What by Dave Eggers, which I think was published in 2005 or something. I mean, I don't know if people even read that today, but I mean, this is a book that Dave Eggers wrote as an autobiography of a real person uh, who I believe was um, a refugee from Darfur. You know, he interviewed this guy. He talked with him. He got his permission and everything. But then he wrote a first person account of his experience. And I, I just I don't think you could I don't think he would have been able to do that in, no 20, in 2019. Well, he, he would have if, he would have caught a lot of flack. Sure. 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 And it's, it's not a very good book anyway. If I not to not to pivot back to film, but I think a good kind of case study for this question is Quentin Tarantino, because Tarantino has often come under fire for the language that he uses, particularly when dealing with black characters, whether it's in. Django Unchained and and the language of slave owners, whether it's Jackie Brown and it's, you know, just kind of Chris Tucker and Samuel L. Jackson riffing off each other. And Tarantino's defense, I think, is correct, which is, you know, as a writer, I have to, I have, it, it is my job to imagine the inner lie, the inner lives of my characters. He's absolutely right about that. But in practice, I do find his use of particularly the N-word, kind of gross and a little sly. So on one hand, I think he's right on, you know, the author's job is to inhabit their characters um, and their minds and their way of speaking and their way of thinking. But you also have to be able to pull it off and you have to be, you have to be sensitive and you have to be tasteful and you have to be empathetic and you, you can't go into it feeling like you're getting away with something, which is what I feel like Tarantino is often trying to do. What do you, what do you think about the idea that life is not graceful or tasteful or, and people are not empathetic and, you know, stuff like that. So what happens when that's portrayed on the page? I'm saying that as a, as a writer, you have to be those things. Yeah. yeah. Um, that doesn't mean your characters do. I, it's just tough because you bring up uh, Tarantino, it's strictly dialogue, right? While as in fiction, obviously only a racist idiot would drop the N-bomb in the middle mm-hmm. of like a narrative, like without some context mm-hmm. around it, you know, like, you know, some legitimate context around it. But like, you know, in, in dialogue, that might be different. Well, uh, again, it's like, okay... You know, not not to get too in the weeds just on Tarantino here, but right, I, can, right. I think he's a good case study. You know, if he's going to justify slave owners using the N word in Django Unchained, there's there's kind of a historical context for that. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have Steve Buscemi say it in Reservoir Dogs out of nowhere, it's a lot harder to justify that. I mean, you can say his character's racist, but that doesn't really have anything to do with his role in the movie. And and, and again, that's the kind of thing where it feels like Tarantino is being sly and trying to get away with something and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, using offensive language, but putting it in the mouth of a character who is, you know, um, a, a, a thief and a murderer. And so, you know, I think there's I think there's a very real difference there. Mm, George. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. It's a tough question. It I, is. I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. I'll put it to you like this. I personally would never write a book in which my main character was another race, was uh, even another gender. I, I, I don't feel as though I could do that well enough. I don't feel as though I would do it with the grace that it would require. I do not believe that I can can do that. I mean, I, I, but but I don't I don't necessarily feel like I have to. As as a as a as a Middle Eastern man, uh, as a Southern Middle Eastern man, that's what I want my characters to be. I want someone in the book to be Middle Eastern. I want someone in the book to be Southern because I can speak to that, you know. But I can't speak to what it's like to grow up in Providence, you know, Rhode Island. I, I don't know what that is. I, I would have to do a hell of a lot of research. And even then, I wouldn't trust myself, you know, because you just can't get it. You just can't get it all that right. 
I personally, I wouldn't do it. But I mean, you know, listen, I'm the guy that writes about genderless fish aliens, right? That's what that's the kind of shit that I write. So I, this is not a problem that I have. You know? But I do. Well, so that, I do that's be- a good idea. That- I do believe for the record that, that plenty of other people can do it and that there's no reason they shouldn't do it. You know, I think that I think that if they're going to do it, they should do it with a, a sense of grave responsibility to the character. And if you're not going to treat your character like a real person, then you shouldn't trot out, you know, uh, sexual preference or or race or anything like that to just uh, attach to a character that you're not going to do the justice to, right? Now, I think that's just being a lazy writer. I think we can all agree on that. But yes, yes, I think everybody can and should try and write from different voices. I don't think that you should necessarily hang your entire narrative on a voice so different from yours that you're almost doomed to fail in doing it any kind of justice. Right. Yeah, I mostly agree with you. I think it's basically like if you don't know what you're doing, then yeah, the fuck are you yeah. doing? Yeah, but, just um, don't do that. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I, I definitely I definitely if we if no one writes about anything except for what they know, then I mean, fiction will change a lot because that's never been the case ever before now. Yeah. Then, I mean, what, what what's there left for it to be other than autofiction, other than memoir, you know, other than autobiography. And I don't think anybody wants to live in a world. I certainly don't want to live in a world where the only thing to pick off the bookshelf is that. Right. Right. Well, yeah. that's precisely where yeah. it leads us though. It leads us to a place where people can, people feel like the only valid thing to write about is their own experience and nothing outside of it. I think that's where it takes yeah. us, which is yeah. not a place and that's no I good. would want to be. No, no, I agree. Yeah. The imagination of others' lives, the imagination of other consciousnesses and inhabiting them is the spirit of fiction. That's the whole project of fiction. And the injection of this identity politic into the world of writing, whereby, you know, if you're not me, it's impossible for you to imagine my experience and therefore you should excuse yourself is something that will destroy the fabric of empathy that is woven into writing and imagination. Yeah, without which, of course, it would fall apart. I mean, that's that's the contract that we make with the reader, especially in fiction. You know, we're we're creating. Yeah, it's a, entirely we're, we're, contrary. We're, yeah, yeah, we're blowing we're blowing air into this fictional world that they're stepping into, and then when they close the last page, they get to take it with them. Yeah, it's diametrically to opposed yeah, to yeah. what fiction is all about. Yeah, it's it's certainly it's certainly a good point to raise in terms of uh, why autofiction and like the personal essay is so on the rise. I actually, I actually, I just have one question, and I don't know if it's furtive. So, yeah, sure. so swat it down at me if you want to. But we were talking about how so many people, especially in the in the MFA program, are told to write what they know, and how so. Many Many of them then in turn go on to write about being writers in a program, right? And it sort of got me thinking about how for the longest time I feel, especially as a, as a writer of fiction, less so of a writer of, as, a, as a writer of poetry, but I didn't know what I wanted to write. Do you remember a time as writers, as individuals, each of you, when you didn't quite know what it was that you wanted to write? And do you remember finding it finally? Or did you all know exactly what you wanted to do, at least by the time that we met or by the time you started taking writing seriously? I'll, I'll say, I think even when I didn't know what I wanted to write, I was arrogant enough to think that I did when I was younger. <laughs> but yeah, there was definitely there was definitely a point. I honestly think that that, that part of the trajectory is in, inherent to many. I, I do think that as a result of people not even asking themselves yeah, that question yeah. sometimes, they don't even know. And so like, I, I, I mean, I've I think I started my, I I wrote three novels before I ever got to Emerald City and I didn't really try and seriously get any of them published. But I remember the second of the three was basically just 
some rehashing of like some David Foster Wallace, you know, style, you know, and like what I wanted to write about was like drug dealing and like shit like that. But there was nothing, there was nothing of substance there. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it was, it, it was just, and that's what I'm saying. Like when you're that young and like, you just don't, you don't understand the depth of things and the texture of things as much as you do when you get older. It's like the question of, knowing what to write is kind of like it just it falls into some black yeah. hole really yeah of of inexperience but yeah i'll, I'll say that and then, and then and honestly i didn't really know what i wanted to write until uh, you know midst writing emerald city like i mean like i said i wrote a massive first draft and chucked the whole thing because i don't think i knew what the fuck i wanted to do yeah. <laughs> you know i just i wanted to write a book about video relay service fraud and and deaf culture and drugs and organized crime but you don't know what that really means until you understand deeply all of those things, you know? So, yeah, I guess that's a pretty vague answer, but no, that's no, where I that's came good. from. I don't think I ever had a time where I didn't know what I wanted to write about or I was searching for. I, I, think, I think that what I've wanted to write has just, has just changed over time. And much of that is formal, I think. For example, I never thought that I wanted to write a novel until probably towards the end of our MFA program. For much of it, I was I was way more interested in short stories. I had no idea that I was interested in writing about movies. Um, I, I never really even thought that much about that as, as a possibility until towards the end of my college years. And I think that uh, the type of fiction that I've been interested in writing has changed a lot, as, as what I've been interested in reading has changed. I mean, Virginia Woolf was a really big influence on my writing um, in college. And when we were in grad school, I was probably, uh, you know, I was more interested in uh, some of the avant-garde stuff that we all really liked and, you know, stuff that's really kind of language forward, you know, Gordon Lish or even Gertrude Stein. I mean, Christ, what a terrible period of writing speaking that was of, for me. Speaking of Tyrant, uh-huh. Atticus, uh, Gordon Lish's son, Atticus Lish. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, have, you, have you read that book, Preparation I haven't for the read Next it, Life? No, I haven't oh, it's read. phenomenal. But anyway, I, I just it. had to plug that because I, I need to yeah. plug at any time. Anytime I have an avenue mm-hmm. into plugging that book, I have to sure. do it. <laughs> I, I think that since graduate school, I have become more interested in fiction that has a plot. And that's probably why I'm responding so much to John Irving these days. You know, I've become less interested in... I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a good, healthy diet of reading. I think that you should... Re- and, and this is... I know I'm getting off track here a little bit, but... Preach. Well, th- this is something that I get into arguments with people about a lot. You know, if I'm talking about Harry Potter and and, you know... You know, they, they they call you a snob or whatever. But and Seth I, is I'm, Seth is the most contentious person I've ever met in my life. Besides by the way. Jared, maybe you, you run in, you run into him on the street, and you know, <laughs> you, you'll he'll be arguing with someone. But my my point my point I my just point, I, for, um, for the readers I just hope you sense the irony. Anyway, go ahead, Seth. My point is not my point is not the Harold Bloom point, which is that you should not read Harry Potter. You should only read the great enduring classics of literature. My point is that you should have a balanced diet of reading. And if you're only reading Harry Potter, then then that's not a balanced diet. If you're only reading James Joyce, I mean Christ, you're going to go out of your mind. So 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 anyway, that's just that's 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 really more of an aside. My point isn't that I don't like the avant-garde stuff anymore, but but I do find that I am I am drawn more to to plot and character and concerns of of story and and narrative in a way that I probably wasn't back when, you know, I was turning stuff into workshop in grad school. Ironically, the novel I'm writing is not really plot-driven at all. So so maybe I don't know what I want to write, after all. Wow. 
This just turned into a therapy session, a group <laughs> therapy session for Seth. I'm just thinking out loud here. <laughs> yeah, how about you, Jared? I don't know if that actually answers your question at all, George. No, I thought it was, I thought it was a great answer. It was a little auto-fictive. Yeah, just, a tad. <laughs> just a tad confessional. It's definitely auto-something. <laughs> Jared, this is this is where okay. it's your turn. Well, what do we what do we write about? We write about things that we're interested in, right? And you know, for my part, I don't think my life is that interesting. I think my life is quite boring, actually. And so I don't consider myself to be interesting material for my fiction. I write about the stuff that interests me, and that has evolved over time. When I was a bit younger, right around the time that we were starting the program at Sarah Lawrence, my Fiction was probably more of a delivery system for certain ideas that I was interested in philosophically. I think that's less the case now, but that's sort of where my brain was at at the time. And now I'm in new territory, but it's I write about what interests me. And you know what are, writers are people who I think are abnormally or intensely interested in things and feel the need to document it. I mean, that's what we are. That's what we Mm do. mm -hmm. So I'm no different than that in my work. I mean, when I sit down every day and have to work on a new paragraph or have to work on a new chapter, where my fingers take me is what I'm interested in, whether it's the lives of others or whether it's a certain idea or whether it's an image or a turn of phrase that excites me. It's the intensity of interest. And returning to what we were talking about earlier, the question of why does this matter? You know, why am I reading this? I think one of the things that makes art self-justifying is the intensity of the interest of the writer. And if the writer cares about something intensely enough, you as the reader will care about it intensely as well. Yeah, agreed. That's uh, also a lot of uh, what Garth was trying to tell us back in the day. George, do you want to answer your own question? I, you know, I just, I, I, wanna... I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed hearing, hearing your answers because I do remember a time very specifically where I was writing what I thought I was expected to write. You know, I was, I was, I was writing in the voices and in the styles and in the ways of the people that I enjoyed reading. But, you know, I, I, I couldn't find much purchase for myself in them, right? Putting on, mm. putting on this author's voice or, or writing with the same sort of uh, motifs as, as this author with the same thrust. Like it, it let me down. And like, I was never, I was, I never had the question, you know, put to me, what do you want to write? I never had the question put to me, why are you writing this specifically? Right. I mean, it took, it took me a long damn time to shake out of it and, and, and ask myself, you know, what do I want to write about? And, and that's, you know, and, and then of course my journey was a little more similar to, to yours as, as writers. Like I wrote what I was fascinated about and now I couldn't be happier. I've never been a better, a better writer, a more, a more pleased writer, more edified writer than, than writing about, you know, what I love, what I'm fascinated about, what I'm, what I'm obsessed about. I, I think there's an element of obsession into it. Personally, I always wanted to run away from what I was obsessed with because I didn't think that that I could make that obsession, you know, into something that other people could consume, right? Obsession feels like obsession feels like madness. Mm-hmm. And and if you can't translate madness, it's just you screaming about something, right? And and but now I, I think I think quite the opposite now. I think that that's what writing has become for me is sort of is trying to to dictate the obsession and and to sort of explain it. And and that's the best thing that I think we can write. Uh, but anyway, that's that's just why I, I asked. I didn't know if if you had similar uh, memories from when you first started writing. You know, you you were writing like so and so, and you you didn't know why, and the stories were shit anyway. So why were you doing it? But uh, no, it was fascinating. I just wanted to to ask. Good job. I think my earliest impulse with writing was just writing stuff that I thought was going to make my friends in the literary club laugh, 
you know, in high mm. school, just writing, you know, stuff that was really stupid, but that I thought was funny at the time. That was probably my first impulse for writing, at least in, in high school. That's interesting. So, which is maybe not the worst impulse, honestly. No. I, I come from a, a similar background in the sense that when I first started writing, it was with some sense of like trying to like show what my mind was capable of or something. You know, is there some sort of trying to impress? To assert your genius. Yeah, assert your genius, I guess. My absent genius. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it definitely has uh, transformed almost totally into what George and Jared said in the sense of the, the deep interest and obsession. That's like, that's it. That describes everything. Like, I, I just want to put these things that I'm obsessed with and to talk about them truthfully and interestingly. Yeah. You guys got anything else you want to talk about or should I wrap it up? Great to be here. Okay. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 26th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum and featuring Seth Katz, George Sawaya, and Jared Marcel Pollan. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.